This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is the SNM show where we talk about what's working, what's not in stocks and markets. And I'm Julian Ng together with Ku Su Chuang. And today we speak to our regular guest, Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, who is an independent FX strategist. And we're going to talk about how Bank Nagara rules are affecting foreign bond traders in a market. Just as a background, Bank Nagara, among other things, tried to curb trading of the so-called non-deliverable forwards because they were a little bit afraid to say the least, to say the least of what was happening to the ringgit. Um, Suresh, welcome again to the show. Now, you're an NDF expert. Uh, I hear you, you, you did your PhD thesis in the NDF market. I can almost hear you saying, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, when I saw the Reuters article, it was quite uh, interesting because uh, this is what something which I always want. If you start criticizing the NDF market and you start putting curbs on it, then uh, it becomes a lot more negative. Uh, and you know, you must bear in mind that Malaysia has got a very big bond market in Southeast Asia. And uh, much of the funding and the markets actually drive on that itself and thrive on that area itself. So in this case, uh, given the fact that you know, uh, you've seen the NDF markets being curbed and the flows are actually coming in at a very little pace itself, tells you that you know, things are not really moving in the bond market, even in the FX market itself. Okay, so just a very basic question, right? And it may sound like a silly question as well. Why are foreigners so important to the domestic bond market? I mean, we all know that they hold a big chunk of MGS or yeah. Malaysian government securities, but why are they so important? I think to a large extent, after that 97, 98 crisis that we had, uh, our structure of financing moved away from loan financing towards debt financing. And uh, we, we've actually introduced two rating agencies on the back of that itself. And we pushed the bond market to, to develop a lot more further. So that's why the, the bond market is a huge amount of, uh, of importance to the overall economic system or the financial system itself as we moved away from loan. Uh, okay. So a- another silly question, right? Why do we need to issue bonds? Why can't we just print money and then pay for the, <laughs> pay for the stuff directly, right? <laughs> Uh, you you must bear in mind that printing money is very inflationary. That's one thing. Uh, you can't print money just like that and then it dilutes okay. the value of the currency. Now, if you introduce bonds, uh, it actually helps finance the fiscal deficit as well as actually you must bear in mind that the the central bank is just the operational agency that, that does the uh, bond issuance while the MOF is the one who actually needs the financing itself or the government itself. Yeah. So the curbs on the NDF market was actually introduced because you know, people were selling ringgits like it was going out of fashion to coin a, um, you know, a, the phrase. But what was actually driving the, the ringgit lower? What, what were the main factors? I think, I mean, if you look back the last few years when the ringgit moved above four ringgit itself, yes, we had that uh, sharp decline in oil prices, very obvious. Then we had that, that, that tightening uh, bias in the US itself. That was one. And then we also had broad-scale commodity prices declining. But that actually progressed in much of 2015. But come to 2016, and the ringgit stayed above four, uh, people started actually being very concerned. And that's where the element of NDF markets came in. The NDF market, there's two features to that. Uh, one is if you can look at it, it'll look like a speculative instrument. The other one, you have to look at it as an arbitrage instrument or mm-hmm. even a hedging instrument. Now, for a lot of investors or even global banks who don't have access to the local market uh, for hedging purposes on their currency, they use the NDF as an instrument itself because it's purely a dollar-settled instrument, while the onshore FX instruments or the FX forwards are actually a ringgit 
uh, hedging tools itself. So a lot of people don't have access to that market. They use the NDF market. But over time, what has actually occurred, at least in the middle of 2016, is that the implied rates on the NDF tend to price in a weaker ringgit compared to the onshore ringgit. And that's where the central bank was very alarmed and they introduced uh, measures. So today, with the ringgit's around about 4.445 or thereabouts. Um, the thing is, oil prices are recovering. Yeah. Uh, you've got the Bank Nagara curbs you know, in operation for at least a few weeks now. But the ringgit doesn't seem to be appreciating. Why? That's why, as I said, a lot of this actually depends on the confidence on the measures itself. And, and given the fact that you know, when the 75% export ruling came about, uh, about two months back, uh, there was a lot of hope that you know you find that you know this this dollar being proceeds actually being converted into ringgit and brought back itself, but unfortunately it's not working. So which tells you that there are two things. As I said, uh, when you introduce this, uh, exporters may be under invoicing their receipts, and importers uh, over invoicing uh, what they need to make the payments. So in that sense, then you find that you know the flows don't come in at all. So uh, they're, they're just. Uh, creating or rather they're just finding ways to skirt the system and get around these rules. Yes, exactly. Um, I I think one of the main things that we've been discussing with various uh, people, economists, market analysts and so on, including uh, with yourself as well, is that of uh, whether Bank Nagara has a long-term or short-term objective and whether Malaysia should have a long-term or short-term objective uh, if I were to silo bond investors, uh, the short-term traders, you know, these are the guys who would uh, do the NDF market and who would trade in bonds and so on. And then the long-term market are FDI investors, right? Now, Malaysia may want to just attract the latter because they mm. come in, they invest and they develop, uh, develop yeah. the country and they give us income. Is what Bank Negara doing uh, correct in that kind of philosophy, you know, uh, to place more importance on long-term investors and uh, not so much on the shorter, shorter-term ones? Am I framing the, mm. the strategy here correctly? I, I, you got a point there. Um, long-term FDI investments, uh, like what Petronas and Saudi Aramco signed over the last few days, it's a, that's very positive for the ringgit. Now, the short-term measures that the central bank introduced, uh, that's actually hurting the ringgit in the short term itself. Now, you have to ask yourself, what is short-term and what is long-term here? Uh, If long-term is more than a year or two years or three years, then probably all these FDI investments from China, even from Saudi, works out very well for the currency itself. Now, for the short-term, for a bond market intraday, uh, you find that if the ringgit is actually weakening and the existing rules introduced by the central bank does not work, then people stay away from the market. So you have literally a two-tier market here. One, uh, um, a real sector which is being driven by the FDIs and is very positive for the currency and other variables. While the short term, uh, the financial markets are driven by measures which are not in place, which are not really convincing itself, which keeps the ringgit weak. So we are caught in this present time. So so yeah. uh, then the question becomes, what is the link there? If I just ignore one and place my focus, my love mm-hmm. on the other, right? Yeah. And over the long term, I, I get love from FDI investors <laughs> and I don't get love from these bond traders. What is the link there and what is the impact? And more importantly, whether this uh, ringgit doldrums is a, a temporary phenomenon or, or whether that, that love that's mm. not given to the short-term investors would affect the ringgit into the long term. Yeah. You know, I, I initially when the ringgit breached above four in middle of 2015, 
I even I assumed it was a short term uh, phenomena. It would last probably a few months or maybe less than a year. It's all, but it's almost coming close to two years now. So which tells you something's not ticking at all. So I'm asking myself whether is the new normal for the ringgit above four or even the new normal at 4.45 and so on. Uh, so I think that people are, are questioning that. I, I myself am questioning actually whether that, that makes sense at all because it doesn't make sense. But over the long term, if you pull out the ringgit chart from the mid-70s until now, ringgit has gradually progressively weakened over time. So are we moving closer towards a weak ringgit policy or are we leaning closer towards a ringgit policy which is strong? I always believe that having a strong currency policy is the way to go forward. Uh, so in this sense, it doesn't really jive. Uh, in one uh, one part, you have long-term investors coming in FDIs, which is augurs well for the currency, while the short-term measures are working out the other way around. Can you explain this for me, Suresh? Because earlier this morning, Julian and I were talking about exactly this and, and promoting the show. And then I just pointed out, because on the, on the benchmark 10-year bond, uh, Malaysia and Thailand have the same rating from Moody's, BAA1, and from the... Yeah, and the same rating from S&P, B, triple B plus. But the Malaysian 10-year bond yield is about 4.04% versus Thailand 2.68%. So it just shows if foreign investors, or at least in, you know, foreign bond investors, have much more faith in the Thailand market, staggeringly, than the Malaysian market. Yeah. So can you explain yeah. this, this huge spread? It, it, that's quite interesting uh, because uh, we, we're almost a similar economy itself and Thailand's GDP in dollar terms nominal dollar terms is roughly around 400 billion and we are roughly around 330 billion itself. Now, there are two components uh, for a bond market investor, especially for if you're looking from an offshore perspective itself. There's an interest return and an FX return. Now, in the case that if the interest return is, let's say, a 3%, and your FX return is probably 3%, then you get 6% in total return. But if your interest return is 3% and your FX returns are in negative, uh, probably uh, 4%, then the, the trade is known as a negative carry itself. So, so people don't go in. So in uh, other words, people expect the ringgit to drop further against the dollar versus the Thai baht, which they expect to appreciate against the dollar. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's why you notice that people are a lot more favorable in the market in Thailand itself. So the pricing in of expectations are being built up on the ringgit to weaken compared to Thai baht, where people are not pricing in to weaken itself. You're listening to the SNM show where we speak about uh, what's working and what's not in stocks and markets. And today we have Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, who is independent FX strategist. And we're talking about uh, the fate of the local bond market coming up. Um, more next uh, on this discussion, BFM 89.9. Nine forty-seven. You're listening to the SNM show where we talk about what's working, what's not in stocks and markets. I'm Julian Ng, together with my colleague uh, Kusu Chuang, and we have Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, who is independent FX strategist, and we are discussing uh, how Bank Nagara rules on uh, the non-deliverable forward markets are affecting the activity of foreign bond traders in the local bond market. So, uh, Suresh, given this background, uh, what is going to happen to the local bond markets? I mean, for example, uh, according to that article uh, that, that you mentioned from Reuters, uh, a PIMCO fund manager was saying, and PIMCO is a force to be reckoned with in the bond world, right? They're, they're the largest bond yeah. fund manager in the world, if not the largest fund manager in the world. Uh, they are saying that uh, the Malaysian market, quote-unquote, is as good as being destroyed. Uh, the, the bond market yeah. uh, is kind of being destroyed. 
what does this kind of narrative suggest about the, the fate of the local bond market? I think uh, if from a, you know what Pimco is actually a foreign fund manager, and what they're looking at is actually looking at their perspective itself. If you look at the uh, profiles of uh, foreign fund managers that come into the local market, uh, they look at a few things uh, or even instruments. One is the T bills and the Nagara bills, uh, because these are discount instruments uh, which they like. They don't like the interest on it, but they like the gains and the value of that of the papers itself and correlates together with, capital the, gains. Yeah, yeah. with the ringgit strengthening. The other one that they like very much is the three-year MGS and to a larger extent maybe five-year. So these are the papers which a lot of foreign offshore investors like. Now the key thing here is that if you look at the three and the five-year, it's dominated by foreign fund managers itself. Now for the local fund managers, they like the five, they like the seven, ten or even longer terms so they match the duration of the portfolios itself. Now whether the bond market gets destroyed that's a bit far-fetched to say that, okay? <laughs> I don't think it gets destroyed. But what I think is that the participation by a lot of foreign fund managers tends to scale back, especially those uh, who are looking at FX gains. So that if, that, if they don't see the FX gain, then they probably get out itself. As I said, the interest return and the FX return plays out very crucially for their decision-making. And what would happen to the kind of funding that the country needs? Because uh, we do read headlines from across uh, last year, throughout last year, that whenever the government issues uh, Sukuk bonds or uh, some uh, corporate bonds, right, it's oversubscribed. So it does give the impression that foreigners are still queuing up to buy up Malaysian bonds. But from now going forward, and and we all know that government needs funding, will this uh, source of funding start to dry up? That's that's a that's a concern which I'm afraid. Uh, but if you look at the 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 pattern of financing that the Malaysia issues for for its uh, funding itself on fiscal deficit, it's usually the ten and the fifteen or even thirty. So that that part of it is very safe. Uh, but the ones which are the the bills, the T bills and the Negara bills, and even the three year and the five year, that one is usually used by a lot more trading activity itself. So on one extent, the funding for the long term of the fiscal policy is there, but the trading activity of the bond market actually that gets tied up, and that's what probably Pimco was a bit more concerned. But they just probably worded it a bit more differently. <laughs> so as a Malaysian investor, I mean, whether directly or by proxy through a professional fund manager. What should be the strategy as far as the bond market is concerned? I mean, if you are a, a pension, if you yeah. need a, to save for your uh, retirement or yeah. you are a pension fund, you know, investor into a pension fund, what would you do? I would probably actually look at the longer term 10 years, 7, 10, 15 or even 20 or 30 years. That is what actually I would look at because that has to match with the duration and also my obligation to a lot of investors. But from a trading perspective, it's a short end. But the key here is that you notice that some of the local institutions, when they actually dabble with the 3 and the 5 and so on, and they know they're losing money, they naturally move their portfolios towards actually holding it to maturity itself. We call it HDM. So mm-hmm. it doesn't go into a trading books, but it goes so you, to you, maturity books. With yeah. HDM, you, you kind of ignore the volatility on yes. the capital values of the bonds and you hold that to maturity so that you get uh, exactly what you um, exactly. lent out to these governments. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, going back to what Chuang highlighted earlier, you know, these uh, bonds from other parts of ASEAN, in fact, from other parts of the emerging markets, wouldn't that wouldn't those things be options for savers as well? Uh, are we necessarily restricted to only Malaysian bonds? Uh, should, I think should we, as a strategy, take yeah. money out and put it into those bonds? I, I mean, the, the thing is that actually, if you look at bonds in the region itself, uh, Thailand, even Indonesia, 
it's it's available for a lot of institutional investors, but from the retail point of view, no, uh, it's not at all. It's not like you know in the West actually where you have bonds where you can access for retail itself. But uh, the key here is if if you're looking at investments in bonds, uh, probably in the region, you'll have to look at it actually whether the currency weakens excessively against the local currency, or even actually the interest return is uh, attractive itself. But so far as what you mentioned earlier, that Thailand is actually a market which is seeing pulling some of the funds back there. Yeah, so if you're a retail investor like most of us are, um, obviously the bond market is not somewhere you would put your money into. Now, it's, it's a hugely hard sell for yeah. you know bond, bond fund managers now. You, you put it into the share market where yeah. it seems to be recovering nicely with the Trump bump and so on. Yeah. yeah? Well, that, that's very short term. I mean, if you're saving for retirement uh, and if you go by the strategy of holding yeah. till maturity, JD, then yeah. you don't have uh, capital losses on top of that. You get yields. Uh, so the, the question here is if I want uh, capital preservation and not necessarily capital Interest. growth, yeah. what exactly do I do, right? Do I put my money in Malaysian bonds or do I look elsewhere? Uh, that's the if, question. If, if, you're, if you're planning to hold it to maturity, yes, it makes sense that you hold longer term bonds. But from a trading perspective, uh, the, the, the short end of the curve, uh, probably five and, and below, the market is not attractive at all. What, what about your forecast for the ringgit? Where is this going to go? You know, I, I still have a 450 for the first quarter, 460 for the We're second quarter. We're not that quarter, far off, right? And 480 for the third and final quarter. So those forecast levels are intact. Wow. Uh, you know, my, my biggest concern is whether... Uh, the trading activity in the local financial market picks up uh, because there's a strong correlation between liquidity pickup and the ringgit strengthening itself. So but the oil, oil prices have recovered very strongly. Isn't that a big help for the Malaysian ringgit? Well, we've seen a lot of media articles showing our dependency on oil revenue getting less. So it's obvious that it's not having an impact itself. But I think that uh, if you look, if you look back, uh, where the convincing story needs to be done, where whether oil prices go up and whether it augurs well for the ringgit, it has to come to a point where really oil goes above sixty and stays above those levels for quite some time before we actually beef up our fiscal policy itself, our revenue. So, without that, uh, then the market doesn't buy that story at all. Mm-hmm. And any word for Bank Negara as to how this uh, should be treated, how the NDF should be treated? Uh, I mean, the export proceeds uh, enforcement, I thought, uh, you know, it's not very good for the traders, but uh, it seems like um, an okay policy for the nation. Yeah. So uh, what would you say to Bank Negara? It, it's an okay policy for the nation, but it's not an okay policy for trading in the exactly, market itself. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so you have you've literally actually killed out the financial sector in favor of the real sector itself. And that's why actually the financial sector is it's not really moving progressively or even fast enough. So that's why uh, that article in Reuters was interesting itself. So what should Bank Negara do? I think the key thing here to look at is very obvious, to re-look back these policies that you introduced on December 2nd and come back into a policy which you don't, have any more with this FEA policy, this Foreign Exchange Administration rules, and come back with a different parameters or set of rules which actually would liberalize the FX market, especially the conventional FX market. So I think that's that's where the crucial thing is because Malaysia needs a more liberalized FX market, not new rulings and trying to assume that it's actually uh, flexible enough and it's not at all. Yeah. Okay, uh, thank you very much uh, indeed for joining us. And uh, we have been talking to Dr. Suresh Ramanathan on how the Bank Nagara rulings on the FX market are affecting foreign bond traders here in Malaysia. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.